It's Wednesday, February 15th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The U.S. aerial war on floating things continues. I will tell the kids at the pool this summer they might want to rethink the water wings. But we are finding out more every day that invaders from afar may have been garbage from a backyard or a legit piece of equipment that just went astray. One was described as a metallic drum. One was said to be octagonal with strings attached. Are we shooting down props and costumes from the Caribbean Day Parade? There was one string attached to the brute force we brought down upon what may well be benign weather balloons. As General Mark Milley said of the two missiles fired by an F-15 over Lake Huron. First shot missed, uh, second shot hit. So great! Congrats, Marco Rubio, your fellow Republicans, too. You successfully raised the alarm against Sky Junk. What a legacy. He represented the interests of Floridians for a time. He represented a fresh face for the Republican Party, but eventually totally freaked everyone out to the point where we're lobbing $400,000 missiles into the Great Lakes. Republicans have been consistent on one thing, however, that President Biden is the real UFO, uncommonly failing official. Here was Dan Crenshaw on Fox. The president hasn't come out and made some kind of definitive statement, even if that definitive statement is simply, we don't exactly know, but we don't perceive any danger right now. Uh, We are in the process of, of doing X, Y, and Z. That is the least definitive statement possible. The U for unidentified has been recast on Twitter by Crenshaw, who is now calling the objects, not UFOs, but quote, we're calling them Unidentified Aerial Phenomenons, UAPs, Phenomenons, that's what he said. But you know what that is? It's still unknown. The unidentified, still unidentified, and phenomenon is vaguer than object. Maybe what would have been better than the call for the president to make a huge deal out of this to the point of waging war on this, whatever this is, would have been something like, I think we need to do less. Yeah, yeah, it's a balloon. It was definitely a balloon. Bus size, three bus size balloons. The Chinese put it here. We're not happy about it. That said, we're going to investigate and we're not going to do anything rash. But they were pressured into getting the order of operations wrong. They literally shot first and now they're asking questions later. On the show today, do you count yourself among the muggles? Well, take heart and strap on your omnioculars as we apparate to the dimension of wizardry enchantment and the defense against dark turfs. But first, Bob Delaney is many things, has worn many hats, even a hat that wasn't his own as an undercover agent infiltrating the mob. He then turned NBA referee, and now he is the author of Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID Frontlines. The Very fascinating. Bob Delaney up next.
We have a crowded panel discussion today. We're joined by, among our guests, are Bob Delaney. He is a former NBA referee. We're also joined by New Jersey Trucking Company executive Bobby Covert. We're also joined by the author, along with Dave Scheiber, of a couple of books about PTSD. One is Surviving the Shadows, and one is called Heroes or Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID front lines. We're also joined by a New Jersey state trooper. And guess what? Yes, here's the reveal. They're all the same person. Bob Delaney, who I mentioned, is that NBA referee, was that state trooper, did go undercover, and now he does fascinating work with veterans and first responders about PTSD. Bob, all of you, welcome to The Gist. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. What's the through line, either with your interests or personality, that has allowed you to wear all these different hats? It, yeah, when I, when I listen to someone introduce me before I speak, I, I always say I can't hold a job. Uh, I, I move from one thing to the other. So I'm a big believer in transitions. Uh, I've never liked the word retirement. So you transition from one thing to the other. And, and also the platforms that you become part of open doors for other things. Yeah. So actually, when you say you can't hold a job, it brings me back to the story you tell about going undercover. You were a New Jersey state trooper. You get this assignment to infiltrate the mob, but this necessitates they have to come up with a cover story about why you're not a state trooper anymore, which is what? Yeah. Uh, so it, it, as you said, in, in, in the early 70s, I joined the New Jersey State Police, followed in my father's footsteps. And uh, that outfit is steeped in deep military tradition, was founded by Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf, the father of the famed General H. Norman Schwarzkopf of the Gulf Wars. And and so um, we, we lived at the stations back then. Uh, we were like firemen, two days on, two days off. And um, I got tapped to do an undercover job that I told was six months. And um you know, that was an aggressive mindset. I guess we're going to end organized crime in the state of New Jersey in six months, I guess, move on to the next thing. And we learned very quickly that that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So I, I was pulled from the station in the middle of the night, uh, a very clandestine operation, I became another person. And, and then it's like being at your own funeral. Uh, the rumor mill starts to go that I got jammed up. My old man was on a job. I was being protected and it was arrested down in Florida. And it's hard to understand that in today's society. But uh, back then, then you know there was no uh, you weren't googling anything you there were no cell phones um, and I became another person I became Bobby Covert catchy name for an undercover guy but yeah we weren't trying to be funny Mike it, it was actually the um, a child who had died at birth and the birth records and uh, death records are not cross indexed in our country so we found the f- same first a name be the same Bob Robert right right someone says Bob you turn around that makes sense. And, and uh, the ethnic sounding last name, as well as age grouping. So that was the reason we came up with that. Yeah. And covert wasn't as in the consciousness as a synonym for undercover back then. Yeah, it was narc yeah. back then, right? <laughs> right. Robert Narc is going to infiltrate yeah. the mob. <laughs> so you start a trucking company, Alamo Trucking, which speaking of names, I think everyone but one Texan died at the Alamo. So it might not have been the most auspicious <laughs> name, but- it works, and it definitely takes the t- its toll on the uh, Genovese crime family, right? Was it Genovese that you were? Uh, Genovese and Bruno crime families, yes. But it also takes its toll on you. I mean, you just hinted at b- these rumors that you know you were kicked out of the job for being corrupt, and then there's the fact that 
you have bonds with the people that you work with. They might be criminals. They might be bad guys, but still as a human being, you're going to feel some affinity for them. So how was it, or were there any programs to transition you away from living a lie to living uh, your actual life, knowing that you also kind of burned all the people that you were working with for many years? No, there wasn't, Mike. And um, those are the kinds of things that it, it, that brought me to doing what I do today. When I surfaced from doing the undercover work, I had been three years of my life and uh, becoming, uh, as you say, bonded with folks, friends, whatever terminology you want to give to it. And not all, but many I felt guilty about because I knew their wives, I knew their kids, I, I knew that what the money went to. For some, it was some some emotionally challenged children that were being supported by the criminal activity. And, and so you have this kind of feeling of guilt that starts to come over you. And, and then you start being paraded around as if you did something brave and tough. Uh, the word heroic is being used for the work that I did. And I'm getting awards and I feel guilty because I know the whole time that I was doing the undercover work, I was scared to death. And so you have a level of, I don't deserve this yet. You don't say anything, right? You yeah. just accept it. And, um, you don't have anyone to speak to because the mob guys don't want to talk to me anymore. They're spitting on the floor when they see me and, and I can't go to another state trooper or FBI agents and, and tell them how I'm feeling. So you feel isolated and that you're, you're not, you're the only one going through this is in your mind. And so this this drove me to become a student of post-traumatic stress. So what was the state of affairs of what our understanding of it was? After every war, the soldiers come home and they either have shell shock or battle fatigue. The, uh, the phrases change. But does the actual treatment for these phrases, I mean, back in the 1970s, what did they do to try to help you, if anything? Yeah, it's a, a great point, right? Uh, I mean, Sophocles wrote two plays about the warrior not knowing how to act after coming home from battle. After the Civil War, we called it Soldier's Heart. After World War One, as you said, shell shock. World War II, battle fatigue. The Korean and Vietnam Wars, we refer to it as flashbacks. Today, we call it post-traumatic stress disorder. From my view, Mike, we have over-medicalized this conversation. And, and please, uh, for you and your listeners, don't interpret that I'm saying we don't need the medical side of the house. We do. But uh, we, we, we've gotten to the point that we're scaring people away from this conversation because it, it conjures up mental illness. This is a human condition. It's happening in Turkey right now after the earthquake. It happens after an automobile accident. It happens after tornadoes. And so post-traumatic stress um, is, is a conversation that I think we need to have as a nation. We've done this with HIV, AIDS, alcohol, drugs, tobacco. Education and awareness, awareness works. Uh -huh. We need to become more aware of what this is. And we have loosely used this term, PTSD. It's everywhere. And, and folks, you do not get PTSD if Starbucks gets your order wrong. And yet we use it so loosely. And the words we use around this are extremely important. So I use the words mind health versus mental health, because I think when we say mental health, we conjure up mental illness. Mm -hmm. And um, when, when dealing with our troops, law enforcement, firefighters, first responders, I refer to it as operational stress versus post-traumatic stress. It's, it's the stress that comes as a result of the work that they do. Those who serve see what the rest of the world does not. So they are exposed to trauma. They go where trauma is. Yeah. And it, 
I would also assume that it bonds the traumatized to each other because they're the only ones who understand, which can be for good and ill. Very good. Yes. Um, uh, this we learned uh, over, over time. So I was going through tough times. A guy by the name of Louis Free knew I was going through tough times. He became the 15th director of the FBI. He was an FBI agent at the time. He and I um, had spent a lot of time together. He, he worked on my case, but he also worked on a case over in New York. And he introduced me to another undercover agent by the name of Joe Pistone. The world knows him as Donnie Brasco. And when I sat with Joe and the first time and spoke with him, looked in his eyes, read his body language, heard his words, I knew he got what I was going through. And it was an introduction to peer-to-peer conversation. I used to call it peer-to-peer therapy, but I take away every medical-sounding term in these conversations. And so Joe and I, to this day, are good friends. I mean, uh, you're able to peel back things that have gone on. And I learned this and it was reinforced to me at the shootings at Fort Hood. I was brought in by General Bob Cohn, who was the commanding general at Fort Hood at the time of the shootings. And in spending time, I I went back to him. I said, General, we have to change our our format here because I was speaking in general to all the soldiers and their families there. And we had to break them up into groups. Those who were across the post, would say to me, sir, I'm okay. I was across the post. I I, I wasn't near the building. Yeah. But yet they were going through a traumatic event because they didn't know if their family member was there or friends were there. Mm-hmm. And so, but they were afraid to speak up when they were around people that were in the building. Yeah. So we had to figure out ways to give them the opportunity to process what they were feeling. That phenomenon that you just put your finger on, that seems very applicable to the book you just wrote, Heroes Are Human, about first responders. Because so many of the nurses and the doctors and the people on the front lines were saying the equivalent of, well, I'm not the one with the tube in my throat. You know, I don't I don't deserve this level of uh, care or attention or self-attention that they do. Who am I to think of myself as traumatized? Yeah. Um, so th- the latest book that I w- wrote was born out of at the beginning of COVID. I'm driving by hospitals and every medical facility saying heroes work here. And it struck me that anyone who is called a hero doesn't feel like one or doesn't yeah. like that title. So I wanted to delve in and I started to realize and drew draw parallels to the work that I've been doing with our military and the visits that I've made, uh, numerous visits to Iraq and Afghanistan that our healthcare community is at war with an invisible enemy. And uh, just as you said, how do we help them process? Mike, one of, one of the things that I do, I ask, I'll ask your audience and you, uh, I do this in presentations to imagine I'm holding the biggest balloon over my head full of air. How do I get the air out? I could take a pin and pop it, but I don't have a balloon anymore. I can let it go. It flies all over the room, goes out the door. We don't know what happened to the balloon. But if we're patient and willing to listen to sounds we do not want to hear, and it may even hurt our ears. We turn it upside down. We let a little ear, little ear out at a time. Rrr, makes that screeching noise. Eventually, we get all the air out of the balloon. And we'll have a, a full balloon we can use again one day. That's us with trauma. Yeah. We need to get the air out of our balloons. But what do we do? More often than not, we push it down one on top of another on top of another. And then we want to blame 9-11 or blame Iraq or blame these major events that take place. And yet it's so many other things that we have pushed down and not processed that is part of all of this. So it's not just one thing. It's an additional stressors. And for our healthcare community, just as you said, they never had to be afraid of bringing cancer home. 
Now they have to be afraid of bringing COVID home to their loved ones. Right. They were not holding the hands of patients. Usually family members were in that room in final breaths. And now they were doing or setting up Zoom calls and FaceTime. These were additional stressors, Mike, that were extremely difficult for our healthcare community. Right. Um, so you, the impetus for this book and thinking about this new spate of people suffering from PTSD is the hero's work here sign. You talk about after your undercover work being vetted as a hero, obviously your time in the NBA, those guys are called heroes. Do you think that we should societally just jettison the concept of heroes? Because I don't know. I think it's actually proper to think of these people as heroes. And I think it's good for society to, to hold up certain people, maybe not NBA stars, as exemplars. So what do we do with that? What do you think the best way to think of that is? Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great question to unpack. How, how, do, how do we do it? Do we call it heroic action versus? Because really, yeah, they do heroic work. Um, but it's an unfair expectation to put that onto someone. Uh, because it's ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And Mike, this took me a long time to figure out. But courage is not absent of fear. Courage takes place despite the fear that we have. And so these are human beings that are doing extraordinary work. Were you fearful on a daily basis when you were running your trucking company? Yes. Yeah, I, I was I was concerned on a daily basis. I, I was either wearing a recording device, uh, an on-body recording device. I did over 300 conversations that way. We had all kinds of equipment, in, and you're constantly concerned that someone is going to find out who you are. And so that that stressor, it was a stressor that I had that I that I lived through during that other cover phase. The, and refereeing uh, an NBA game in front of tens of thousands of people, a million watching at home, and uh, Michael Jordan screaming in your face, which is not just uh, a, a supposition. There is a brilliant picture of him losing it right two <laughs> inches from your nose. That's a, that's a stress. And obviously, it's that it's not a life and death stress and the stakes aren't high. But was it a very different kind of stress? Was there, is there a good stress versus the bad, fearful stress? That's a great point because it was a great stress for me, a, a good stress for me. It provided an inner peace. That was my therapy. When I came out from working undercover, um, something about basketball, I played it since I was 10 years old, played in high school, played in college, and I was being pulled back there because I was on a street that had no rules and no boundaries, and then I went to a game that had boundaries and rules, and I didn't know what I know about post-traumatic stress as I do today, but it was tending to my hypervigilance. I had to be looking around all the time. And so uh, I, I, that helped. Um, the endorphins that were being released in my body as a result of the running that was taking place. I wasn't being isolated. I was in a group setting and I was forced to interact with people. What I just described are some telltale signs of post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. People isolate. Um, they become paranoid. And, um, you know, for me, uh, when when people would give that heroic work thing, I, in my mind, they don't see me at two o'clock in the morning walking around my house with my gun out, pushing shower curtains back, afraid they're coming to get me. The paranoia was extreme. But the thing that was different for me in an undercover status is that at, at any point we could end it. And it would be over because of either personal threats to life or kind of some kind of situation. In anyone else's life, 
they don't get that opportunity to end it whenever they want. It ends when the situation ends. And so there was a level of support that I had in knowing that this is a, a pretend world that I'm in. It's high stakes, but I can end it or my bosses can end it at any time. So we knew that we had that kind of protection. Other folks don't have that. I mean, they didn't know when COVID was ending. They don't know. It's like starting a race and, and being said, okay, ready, start, go, and not knowing. My wife runs has run multiple um, marathons. That 26.2 uh, race, they, they know a pace, those that run it. They know the beginning, middle, and end. Uh, our, our healthcare workers, those that go to Iraq and Afghanistan and, and, and fight on foreign soils, they don't know when it's going to end for them. I believe societally we were horribly insensitive for many, many years. Perhaps you could say ignorant, although as we talked about, Sophocles put his finger on this phenomenon and we keep changing the name of battle fatigue or post-traumatic stress syndrome. So we should have known about it. But just more than even more than PTSD. In general, we were insensitive, and now we're really quite sensitive. And sometimes, and this might be a reflection of the fact that I'm 51, I think that we the pendulum has swung so very far. And when you embrace sensitivity, resilience uh, goes by the wayside. So that is the last gray area I want to talk about. How do you think about not having so much sensitivity that we de-emphasize resilience, not just in terms of actual trauma, but if the guy got your order wrong at the Starbucks? Yeah, Mike, I, that's the reason I called it um, lessons in resilience, courage, and wisdom from the COVID front lines. We, we, courage uh, comes, wisdom comes, resilience can be individual and more often than not we think of it as 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 an individual thing but uh to your point you know there is no testimony without a test and so when we go through difficult times that that's a process and we grow from that and we shouldn't be like having a self-fulfilling prophecy that every time you go through something difficult that you're going to have post-traumatic stress that's not a true statement there is going to be resiliency and there's individual resiliency and collective resiliency you have collective resiliency through your friends through your family members through any organization or team that you're part of and I think I break down resiliency into three segments. There has to be a confrontation to the reality. And I, I the word confrontation is kind of a negative, so I, I change it to carefrontation. Okay. We carefrontate. <laughs> we, we confront because we care. And then the second is a search for meaning. While we all have our own religious beliefs, there's a spirituality to resilience. And the third part is FIA, flexible, innovative, and adaptive. We have to be flexible, innovative, and adaptive in our pursuit of resilience. And I believe it's learned uh, behavior as well. Uh, so we can hear other people's stories and learn from that and connect the dots to our own story. So um, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I think that we have to look at small wins that come. And think of Simone Biles, mm -hmm. where we are in our society, that we were understanding to what she was explaining. And yet... Two to three Olympics ago, she would have been vilified as unpatriotic because she didn't gut it out and tighten her belt and, yeah. uh, you know, go and do it. This is a woman that's going to be 12 to 15 feet in the air. And we all became educated to twisties and right. we became aware and we became in agreement with her. We, we were knowledgeable about something, which brings me back to that education and awareness. Yeah, you know. 
I've gotten an insight because we talked about heroism earlier on my show. I've said all that about Simone Biles and there can be no debate. She's in an extremely dangerous situation. And if she loses her bearings up there, she could break her neck. But I did chafe at some of the analysis afterwards, which said that, you know, the most heroic act of her life was not the earning all those Olympic medals, but sitting out this. And I understand the intent of someone arguing that, but maybe it just gets back to not a lot of good happens when we use the word heroism or when we talk about things as heroic actions. Exactly. I I, I agree wholeheartedly. Bob Delaney is a former NBA referee, a former New Jersey state trooper, and his latest book is titled Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID Frontlines. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you, Mike. And now the spiel. Let me take you into a world I do not know and do not understand and know I will never know. The Chamber of Secrets, the Philosopher's Stone, the Half-Baked Phoenix, the Half-Order of Fusilli, the Goblet of Hoglets. Okay, I may have made up some of those or got them wrong, which is to say I don't know the wizarding world of Harry Potter that well. I am your basic bitch muggle, but I do know it's huge. How huge? Well... When it comes to the new Harry Potter video game, we're talking Nundu or Runespore-sized. Yeah, it's called Hogwarts Legacy, and it's enormous. It's the number one game in sales. It's the best-selling Harry Potter game of all time. It's the most-watched single-player game ever on Twitch. It's been predicted to sell 10 million units, and since it retails for $70, that's $700 million, a.k.a., 29 Knuts and one sickle, 17 sickles and a galleon. It's 29 million golden galleons or 14 billion Knuts, and that's according to Jerome Powell. There shouldn't have been any question that a well-made game which allows players to live in a beloved intellectual property would do well. But there was that question because of J.K. Rowling, who had nothing to do with the design of the game. But as CNN states it bluntly, quote, the author has repeatedly made anti-trans comments. Here's the background. Two and a half years ago, Rowling mocked the use of the phrase people who menstruate. When criticized, she wrote a long thread in which she articulated a position that she has stuck to, that there is a difference between women and trans women. She said of trans women that she supports them, she respects them, she respects their right to live in any way that feels authentic and comfortable to them, and she vowed to march with them if they were discriminated against. But she concluded, quote, at the same time, my life has been shaped by being female. I do not believe it's hateful to say so. And she has said so again and again. She always goes to her pen with the stated intention of doing what she knows how to do, explaining things through the written word. Today we will review a spell that has saved me from death at the hands of dark wizards more times than I care to remember. Levioso. But Rowling has found that each attempt at an explanation always results in louder repudiation of her views. There is nothing that she's written that's quote-unquote worse than what I read to you. She says she supports trans women, but she puts them in a different category than what she calls real women, what a scientist might call someone natally female. Putting aside if this sentiment is hate speech, erasure, violence, harmful, an opinion she's entitled to, or what, 
It did earn Rowling the ire of many fans who would otherwise buy her game or at least be among the cohort to be interested in it. In fact, sites MuggleNet and Leaky Cauldron have rejected Rowling's beliefs on transgender rights, which is like truth social rejecting Trump. Some Potter fans have even taken action. Reviewers have had to issue statements about their choices to review the game, which is the biggest blockbuster of the year. Twitch streamers, social influencers have been harassed for discussing the game, even for announcing they won't be playing the game out of fear on the condemnation they'd get if they did. So I took my revenge to wreak havoc and harm. Trans activists have been posting screenshots of the ending of the game to try to ruin the experience for players. This is among the youth known as spoiling an intellectual property, and I am told, despite dictates of etiquette, in this case, the spoilage does not come with an alert. Just as I think Rowling's speech should be protected, and not just by law, but by cultural norm, I think protesters have the right to strongly object to the game or anything else that's an outgrowth of J.K. Rowling's universe, as one might find a mutant species in Professor Spout's herbology class. The most important thing cultivated in herbology is knowledge. Of course, there are objections, and then... There are claims of genocide. Yes, there were claims of genocide lobbed at those who played the game. Some would-be reviewers or streamers were aggressively harassed. Did you two take on a fully grown troll by yourselves? Harassing's bad. The tactics, by the way, are also stupid. But I was most interested in the widespread apprehension over the question, will this game actually sell? even if gameplay was great. CNN wrote before the game's release of the uncertain reception it would receive, quote, part of the game's expectation is based on controversy surrounding Harry Potter's creator, J.K. Rowling. The author has repeatedly made anti-trans comments and some of the movie's actors have spoken out against them. Some gamers are also boycotting Hogwarts legacy over the controversy, quote, it's not a commercial risk so much as a cultural one in why you professor Joost van Drunen said of the game's release. But there was no risk. The game's enormously popular. The very loud voices were waging a lost battle. The debate now is if the backlash brought the game more attention and boosted sales. I don't think it did, for the same reason I think the criticism was doomed to fail. Because the vast, vast majority of people who love Harry Potter love Harry Potter and do not want to occupy themselves with what they see as an issue tangential to a source of entertainment and pleasure. If Harry or the players in the game were espousing white supremacy views or clearly subjecting players to speech that they objected to, that'd be one thing. But the uninvolved creator's words, which maybe some don't even find objectionable, weighed against a chance to play a game they love, players chose not to punish themselves. A boycott only works if boycotters get more pleasure or satisfaction out of giving up the thing than using it. And no boycott will succeed if you're asking someone to give up something they really love for something vague or something they feel guilted into kind of supporting. Sure, people will switch one fungible commodity for another. There was the anti-Uber backlash. People went to Lyft. That was easy. That was frictionless. It also didn't work that well. Same thing happened when Neil Young tried to lead a boycott of Spotify over Joe Rogan. Spotify was nervous for a time. 
Now Rogan's listenership is up. Spotify's listenership is up. Spotify's revenue is up. Listeners didn't want to punish themselves. I think also of the talk of the NFL waning in popularity because of its failure to address the concussion issue. The sort of people who have access to New York Times op-ed columns and New Yorker podcasts made it seem like football was in serious trouble. New York Magazine, 2017, writing on concussions, is this the end of the NFL? Sports Illustrated, 2016, a future without football. Head injuries put NFL game at risk. PBS, 2013. League of Denial. The NFL's concussion crisis. I'm really wondering if every single football player doesn't have this. Not every player had it. The Cassandras were wrong. The league actually put in protocols to address some of the problems. And in the end, this is where I'm supposed to say the problem was solved, but the problem wasn't solved. But that makes my point even further. The problem can actually never be solved. It's just that people love football. On Sunday, 113 million people watched the Super Bowl, third highest ever. 82 of the 100 most-watched programs last year were NFL football. But just a few years ago, there was real discussion in real places that we normally take really seriously that the game was headed for a demise. The discussion was wrong. It was off. It mistook the concerns of a well-listened-to elite for the desires of the public. This says something that touches on populism in political figures, something about gatekeeping in media, but mostly it says that protest movements are so thoroughly misunderstood, which is not to say that there's no successful protest movements as protesters would define it. It's not to say that people aren't pressured every day. Activism, pressure techniques, boycotts, they work. They won't work on JK Rowling. She's a billionaire colossus, but if she weren't, she could well be fired from her studio or dropped from her publisher. There are examples of young YA authors being dropped or sanctioned, punished, because they like to tweet from J.K. Rowling. The atmosphere of condemnation is not going unheard. Other less powerful artists or thinkers, or to give voice to how an activist would put it, other less powerful transphobes, are on notice. Choose your next words wisely. Indeed, ran Rock the Goblin. And as a wise wizard might caution to those who eschew trying to reason with people versus waging a scorched earth campaign, you get more whoopers with butterbeer than Lima's crazy blob drops. And that's it for today's show. We had help from a talented cast. There were the professors of Defense Against the Dark Arts. There was Ranrock the Goblin. Peeves, the poltergeist at Hogwarts. He was there. Herbology Professor Garlic. I believe I might, might have misidentified Professor Garlic, the herbology professor. The potions class. That was, of course, taught by Professor Sharp. And, of course, Puffskeen the sphere-shaped custard-colored creature covered in soft fur. I, he's always there propping us up, delivering us from evil, or maybe visiting evil upon us. I'm not really sure of the orientation of Puffskeen. The Gist is produced by Muggles Corey Wara and Joel Patterson, who's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. Her sorting hat put her in that particular house the operations house. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.